now for this next segment. I'm pleased to have with us constitutional law expert and Anthony Mason Professor and Sientia Professor at UNSW Law School, George Williams. So I've been looking forward to this. First, the travel bans, and I've been really waiting to unload on this to, to have a rant to someone on this. So we've, we've got a Biosecurity Act with determinations made by the Minister under this Act, you know, one of the sections says that the minister can stop people spreading a contagious disease from other countries to here and from here to other countries. But for me, here's the, the crazy thing. They're stopping people from leaving. So even people who want to leave for long periods of time or permanently. So for me, this is North Korea stuff. Am I losing my mind to be infuriated by this? I think it is a problem. And uh, even though I think our governments are well justified in taking tough measures to respond to the pandemic, uh, sometimes they go too far and they undertake what I call arbitrary measures, things that just don't have any clear justification. So I can understand why there's a good justification to protect the community by quarantining people on arrival, taking all sorts of measures. But it's very hard to understand what the justification is to stop people leaving the country. I mean, what's the danger to the community in doing so? If there is, it's very small, and it does seem to be something that goes too far. I wonder, George, do you think is that um, sort of the law substituting for communication? Are they, rather than take the effort of explaining to people these measures, are they, are they using law to, to get messages across? Look, yes. I mean, the law is used as a pretty blunt instrument. Um, in this process and uh, all sorts of measures being brought in very, very quickly. And here, I think we also have to recognise the challenge for the people making these rules. Uh, if you look at the lockdowns, we're often finding new rules made on an hourly, daily basis as they try and calibrate community protection uh, with the need to actually uh, manage liberty at the same time. And not surprisingly, they often get it wrong. Um, sometimes because they act so quickly, they make a poor judgment. Other times they overreact. Other times they underreact. And as a result, the community is even more likely to be affected. So, yes, the law is the primary mechanism for doing those things. And uh, what we're seeing is something that's highly unusual. Really, last time is World War II when we've seen law being so coercive on individual liberty and made so quickly in response to such a large threat. Now, I mean... Can this stuff be challenged with scientific and medical facts in a court? Like, can we say, you know, there's no medical evidence that we're increasing the risk to people in other countries if we leave, someone leaves and goes to live in another country? Or, or is it just like the minister just decides the moon is made of green cheese and we all just have to live with that and, and whatever he decides is, you know, a risk is a risk? Well, normally rules like this are made according to criteria and legislation. And if the rules aren't reasonable, then yes, that can be a basis for challenge where people will bring all sorts of evidence to show it was, say, just an irrational, unreasonable rule. In this case, though, it's very difficult. And that's because our parliaments have armed governments with the most extraordinary powers. And uh, if you look at the federal powers and the Biosecurity Act, uh, the Governor-General can declare a human biosecurity emergency and when that happens, the federal health minister can make any rule, any determination that he or she thinks fit. Um, there isn't any criteria except that it needs to be directed to protecting the community. And that is so open-ended that it leaves enormous scope for judgment and very little room for challenge. The same at the state level, Victoria, New South Wales, the other states, they tend to have open-ended measures whereby parliament has said, do what it takes. Uh, we're not prepared to fetter your hand. And uh, 
as a result, there's much lesser room for courts in these type of decisions than there are at other times. And I mean, basically, the um, you know people are not being given reasons; they're just approved or rejected seemingly at random. There's obviously some you know junior border force person, you know, people who have got the job of just going through thousands of these things and just clicking yes or no. Is there any? Is there any requirement for, for a reason to be given so that people know? I mean, apparently people are just applying multiple times and sometimes they get it with no change to what it is that they put in before. And again, partly it's the speed. And even if you've got people acting with the best will in the world, I mean, managing the entry and exit of thousands of people with thousands of stories of hardship and different personal circumstances. I mean, if you had a year to work those things out, maybe. But again, these are these are daily minute by minute decisions. Um it's not surprising some are arbitrary and some, frankly, are wrong. Um, it is, though, a very hard thing to challenge. Uh, partly, it will take a long time to do so, quite expensive, and so just access to justice is difficult for these things. Another key problem, though, is a lot of this is not accompanied by reasons. Uh, the law doesn't require, as a rule, reasons to be given unless Parliament or the government is prepared to do so. So if you've simply got a yes or no without reasons, it's, it's very hard to fashion a case to show they've got it wrong. Uh, it's also the case that under these federal powers, you don't even have the possibility of disallowance by parliament. And uh, these powers can override any other law. Uh, again, quite extraordinary, which shows that the deck is really stacked against individuals quite deliberately by parliament at a time like this, making it very hard for any individual to get recourse or even proper review. And yet we're seeing people with means and people in politics coming and going pretty much at will. Um, do you think there's going to be any issues after the pandemic? Will governments be held to account or is there a mechanism to hold them to account for the way that they have made their decisions during this time? Well, and of course, once you get to a situation where discretion becomes so important, you do find that discretion exercised in ways that uh, can be to the advantage of powerful, well-connected people. Uh, it's why we tend to have criteria, rules, review and the like, so that the law operates equally. Um, but at a time like this, it's no surprise to see special accommodation being made. I think when you have uh, rules and powers like this, and they can be justified, um, including at a time like this or during war, it's really important that, yes, there's a full review afterwards. Uh, people have to know that what they do now to protect the community will be subject to quite intense scrutiny afterwards, whether powers properly used, were they misused? What lessons do we learn? Should we have built in more checks and balances? There's been some suggestions of a royal commission. I'd actually support that because I think there's not much that is more important when it comes to the operation of government than the making of rules at a time like this. And uh, we need both accountability and, and understanding as we emerge from this as to what has gone right and wrong. Big picture, there is nothing remotely like this going on in any other comparable country. Um, comparable, I mean, I'm sure if you look to China or North Korea, you, you can find it. But how have we found ourselves in this position? I mean, they're just the, the unfettered thing, you know, Parliament just gives the government, you know, the power just to do whatever they want, whatever's convenient. There just seems to be very little interest generally in the media on just finding out what's the basis for how we got here. And, and by here, yes, we're at a point where our governments can ex exercise the sort of powers you'd expect in a dictatorship, uh, make decisions without recourse, without proper review, lock us in our houses. I mean, it's quite an authoritarian system and by design. Um, 
But I guess what I'm pointing to is, is it to do with the fact that we lack something that other countries have? Look, the answer is yes. And there's a couple of things that we lack that explain our exceptionalism and not just exiting Australia, but the fact that we're denying citizens the right to return. I mean, that also is quite remarkable that you would prevent your citizens and have them marooned in another country um, facing potentially death because they can't return. So in Australia, there's a couple of things we lack. One is that we don't have the same cultural sensitivity, political and otherwise, to human rights. Um, We are much more politically willing to see more authoritarian responses. Um, You see that in our anti-terror response, which again is very exceptional by world terms, even though the threat here is lower. And the other is that that cultural approach, the permissiveness for breaching, undermining basic liberties, is reflected in the law itself. Uh, we're the only democracy in the world without a National Human Rights Act or Bill of Rights that does things like protect citizens' rights, entry, exit to the country, freedom of speech, review, all sorts of basic assumptions that the people in Australia think we've got these things, but of course we don't. And if you don't have those hard checks, if you don't have the laws, then that simply means there's an open door to our politicians to take what steps they think are necessary. George, why is it a good idea to have a Human Rights Act? Some people think it's better to have nothing because they don't trust the judgment of courts. Well, and it does depend on who you trust, ultimately. If you feel as if the human rights of people, including the most vulnerable, will be protected by your politicians, your leaders, well, perhaps it's not needed. But There are just too many examples that that's not the case. Uh, You only have to look at the history of Indigenous peoples in Australia, denied the vote, denied the right to marriage, to movement. Many of the most basic entitlements of citizenship um, were kept away from them. And, of course, many other groups you can point to in the same category. And what overseas experience shows is that you need a democratic system both that exercises power through politicians but checks that power to protect certain groups and to make sure that fundamental values like speech, liberty, movement, association are protected. Because without that, it's all too likely that those things will be taken away, particularly in times of crisis, sometimes for purely opportunistic reasons or sometimes because they get the balance wrong. And as a result, human rights are taken away too readily. I wonder if you think that now is a good time for that, given we're in a time of high anxiety and, and actually a lot of people are are embracing their rights being curtailed, is now a good time to have a discussion like this or would we end up with something super restrictive? No, I think now is the right time. And, and of course, a debate like this cuts both ways. There's the the impact upon me in Sydney. I can't leave my house. I'm in lockdown with my family. That's a clear breach of my liberty and all sorts of human rights. But on the other hand, I also understand that this is about protecting my own rights to health. Uh, well-being. And uh, so there is a balance there that I think much of what our governments are doing, even strict measures, can be justified on a human rights basis as a necessary and proportionate measure to protect the health of the whole community. So I actually think at a time like this, human rights are very helpful. What they do is identify the justification. and, And critically, what they do is ask, is it proportionate? Does it go too far or just far enough? And one of the problems in Australia is not with a tough response by government. I think it's justified, but in too many areas, they've gone too far. They haven't thought deeply about whether, in fact, the particular limit is needed or necessary. And so as a result, we get blunt measures that I think could be tempered and improved uh, through a greater sensitivity to the human rights of people. So can I just follow up on that? Because I'm really curious about this idea that we might have rights at this time. For instance, one right that people have been 
laughingly talking about is the right not to catch COVID. Um, if you have a right like that, that assumes that people have, have a whole lot of responsibilities in the way that they behave so that you don't catch COVID. So is there, is there a way that that could be formulated or is that one of the sort of the laws that you think that might go too far and we would need to talk about what's reasonable and proportionate? Well, I think in every case it's about what's reasonable, what's justified, what has an evidence base to it and recognising that, yes, I mean, responsibilities are the flip side of rights. So some people have talked about I, I have a right not to wear a mask. Um, well, that's not true anyway. But even then, what about the responsibility to act in a way that protects the health of your fellow citizens? You've got no right to enter a store in an area that may be a high-risk area in circumstances where you may actually spread a virus and cause harm to people. So you need to look at rights from both ways. And you, we all need to understand that at a time like this, responsibilities loom quite large and we need to recognise that individual rights need to be looked at in the light of the health and well-being of the community as a whole. Yeah. Would we end up with a hierarchy of rights? I'm sorry. Go, go. Sorry. Yeah, that's no, fine. Go ahead. I, I'm, I'm just wondering if we would end up with a hierarchy of rights. So we're often, we often talk about this concept that, you know, one, one type of victim might, might trump another kind in the sort of culture wars side of things. But in this case, would we end up with, for instance, having to formulate a pyramid of rights where somebody who has an is immune compromised or has a disability is more is more susceptible to catching the disease, um, but also not able to be vaccinated. Um, their rights might trump the rights of somebody else who didn't want to get vaccinated and would then therefore need to be compelled? Or can you see that that playing out in any way? Yeah, I, I can. And, and I think it's because at a time like this, so much depends upon facts, context, individual circumstances, um, and also it just depends upon the threat. So what might be reasonable right now when we're in lockdown for government to do becomes very unreasonable, I hope, when we have a large segment of the population vaccinated. Uh, there's no longer a justification or a proportionate response to have lockdowns of the severity we have now. And, and equally, as you say, I mean, someone's responsibilities and rights need to be looked at in light of whether they can even have a vaccination. Uh, some people cannot, and that may be a small segment of the community, but it may be reasonable for those people to go about their lives in a way that's not reasonable for someone who has that choice but refuses to exercise it. Yeah. I think there's one, one thing that um, really bothers me about the government's what you call blunt, you know, approach is that there seems to be a real unwillingness to tolerate allowing people to make their own risk calculations. It's a, it's a really kind of perverse condescending attitude that that in terms of for example letting people go overseas that that treats everyone as a as an idiot or as a child and just assumes people can't be allowed to make a decision that can't possibly harm anyone but themselves and in a way it's it's almost like the government is saying you can't be allowed to maybe complain at a later date like it's it's sort of like we can't allow you to to be to 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 complain <laughs> you know that's all it is really um well i think it's, it's a good reason why other countries don't have the bans on exit 
uh, because they do accept that people can make individual choices and bear the consequences of those choices. But Australia in many areas has had governments over the years much more likely to want to make the choice for people. Um, and I think, again, it comes down to proportionality, risk, reasonableness. But for me, I think it is a bridge too far to say you can't exit the country. Sure, when you return, there are consequences in terms of quarantine and the like. But uh, so long as someone is aware of the circumstances, um, it's hard for me to see why they shouldn't be able to make their own decision. Is that a particularly Australian characteristic, though, since we've got such a such a great Medicare system? I've often been struck by the fact that Australians perhaps uniquely in the world, feel like they have a very extensive right to tell other people what they can safely do and what they can't because we're all paying for it. So, I mean, you know, without wishing Medicare out of existence, is there something about our culture that makes us more likely to take that sort of attitude? I think there is lots of good examples of that. In fact, many good examples that show a real strength of our community. And and one of the reasons we've been so successful until recently in combating the virus is a strong communitarian sense of people following rules, feeling we're all in it together. And we haven't seen, say, the protest or dissent you've seen in the US or elsewhere, which has made it much more problematic to control a pandemic. But I think uh, Australia introducing mandatory seatbelts, uh, random breath testing, is a number of things that trump individual choice and liberty that have been shown to have big benefits for the community as a whole. So I think there's good things about that. It's just, again, sometimes it goes too far. And particularly at this time, I think that blunt decision-making, I think without greater regard being given to choice, human rights, and frankly, evidence, uh, it does get problematic in some cases. It does seem from some of the language coming from people who are angry about the lockdowns that a lot of people think that we have some guarantees of certain freedoms in the constitution that we don't actually have. And I guess what I'd like to know from you is I want to dig in a bit to something I read in the news, which was that one high court judge recently um, in, a, in a case seems to be saying that, no, he doesn't think we do have one thing that we thought we had, which was an implied freedom to communicate about political matters. Can you interpret that a bit for me, George? Like if we, if what this judge is saying is that we don't have it, then is he really saying we shouldn't have it? Or is he warning us and saying, well, it's just some unwritten tradition and we better do something about the fact that we don't have it? Yeah. And in that case, I mean, a national constitution, no bill of rights, very little at all to say with respect to rights, even something as basic as freedom of speech. So uh, a couple of decades ago, the High Court said, well, maybe we can imply this right of political communication. After all, the constitution says you have elections, but how can you have an election unless candidates can say what their policies are? People can discuss who to vote for. So the High Court said, yes, there's this implied freedom, but it's always been contested. And And this recent judge, Justice Stewart, has said that he's not even sure it exists. After all, it's not written into the Constitution. And he's casting doubt upon that in a way that, you know, should wake us up and say, well, if it's not there, if really we don't even have this basic free speech guarantee, I mean, what sort of democracy are we left with? And are we really happy to have a democracy where it's possible to jail journalists for publishing in in the public interest or or a range of restrictions on speech that really heavily limit government accountability. 
So it's, it's a contested field that is simply not true in other countries. It's just a bedrock written guarantee, speech and the like. But in Australia, um, its very existence um, remains under question. Uh, so um, the fact that it remains under question, do you think um, do you think most people are aware of that? I mean, I, I think that most Australians think they have freedom of speech on, you know, so that, that they, they know from American movies that they have. Well, there's lots of evidence. And uh, I mean, there's a poll taken some years ago, asked Australians, do we have a National Bill of Rights? 62% said yes. And, uh, and that US TV is very pervasive in, and that's where a lot of civics comes from in Australia, watching US cop shows and the like, where people are often talking about their rights. Or I, I saw this directly when I was in Victoria. I chaired the community consultation that led to the first state Human Rights Act, the Victorian Charter of Human Rights and Responsibilities. And I had well over 100 meetings, travelled the length and breadth of the state over a long period of time. And time and time again, I had uh, Victorians saying to me, look, I don't think we need a Victorian charter. We've got the National Bill of Rights. And so I talked to them about why they thought that. And, and the first thing they'd say is, well, I know this National Bill of Rights, it protects my freedom of speech. But the second most often thing they said is, I know that if I'm in trouble in the courts, I can take the fifth. And of course, the fifth is the fifth amendment to the United States Constitution. And it showed in those Victorian communities, uh, that's where their knowledge is coming from. And they have a set of assumptions that are just sadly wrong about how well protected they are if power is used wrongly against them. It is actually the one, the one state in which um, pandemic measures have been tested in the context of the public housing towers that were locked down, the nine public housing towers um, that were locked down at the beginning of the pandemic. And the, um, the residents of those towers took the, uh, took the, sorry, let me just start, um, start again. I was wondering about the Victorian situation because it is the one state where those powers have been tested, where um, a, a public housing um, estate was locked down at the beginning of the pandemic and the residents took the government to court and, um, and established that their human rights had been violated. I was wondering whether there would be any consequences of that to the Victorian government. And I guess more broadly, should we be looking at the states having these bills of rights rather than the Commonwealth, since in the course of this pandemic, it has been the states leading the way? And I think the short answer is you should have these human rights protections at both levels. And that's true of the United States, Canada and elsewhere. And wherever you have politicians exercising power on our behalf, you need this instrument to make sure they do so in accordance with rights like speech, association and the like. And you're right, Victoria is where this has been tested and, and also where the government has used the charter in checking whether it's doing the right thing. So a good example is the curfew where uh, the chief health officer, Brett Sutton, for example, said uh, at the end of one of their lockdowns, we've decided now is the time to end the curfew. We've done so in light of the Victorian Charter. It's no longer proportionate to do so, given the case numbers and the risk to the community. And so he, he overtly used the Charter as the basis for saying we just can't justify anymore um, this measure. They have gone too far, though, in some cases. A good example were the towers where, yes, the Ombudsman said there was a problem. The Ombudsman said that locking them down was justified, but it was done in the wrong way. It was they weren't given enough notice, um, people left scared, not enough food, and this should have been done better. 
And uh, it's a clear signal to the government there to not repeat it, and indeed it hasn't. We've also seen in Victoria a challenge uh, to the curfew in the courts where they analysed the curfew to check whether it was proportionate and went across it carefully. And in the end, they said, yes, given the risk to public health, the, the curfew is a proportionate measure and so can be justified. And so what you've had there and only there is a testing of these things, both so, within government as to what they do and as to whether they can be justified. So was that tested on, um, on scientific grounds? So was the curfew found in some way to, to stop the spread of the disease? How did they prove that? Yeah, um, and, and yes, and what happens in these cases is this question of justification lends itself to expert evidence. And uh, so it's up to government to say why, as a measure, it would actually help to reduce the likelihood of infection. Um, and alternatively, of course, the other side can say, no, we don't think it makes much of a difference. So and I remember, case, yeah, I remember there yeah. was a woman who challenged the curfew, the, the, the 9 p.m. or whatever it was curfew. And I remember reading, looking in the judgment and searching in vain for where the judge said that her, you know, this woman walking by herself getting, you know, after 9 p.m. was a, you know, was you know was a threat and you know whatever look looking in vain for the passage where the judge would say look this is what the human rights charter said this is not proportional but he he didn't he said he or she said oh well it's easier for the the evidence is from the government that it's easier for them to enforce something that's just blanket and whatever's convenient for them is good is good to is good is good fine by me but that's basically what the judge said and i found that quite extraordinary like it's like was like what's the point of having a charter then well, and I, I think it's it's a good point, and I think uh, partly it's the strength of the evidence the judge had to work with in that case. Stronger evidence may have led to a different result, but it's a bit like in wartime. Um, governments tend to be given enormous discretion, and judges are really reluctant to intervene. So instruments like charters are useful, but we shouldn't kid ourselves that judges are likely to be too interventionist because judges themselves don't have all the material. They're wary about second-guessing the executive at a time of national emergency, and so they tend to be far more hands-off at a time like this in applying something like a charter, not just here, around the world that is the case, uh, because it tends to be recognised that a crisis demands that the executive have a freer hand to make decisions, including blanket decisions that may be hard to justify individually at a different time. Doesn't that then remove the checks and balances in the system? Because, I mean, you know, it always springs to mind for me, one of the first things that a dictator does in order to take over in a country is declare a state of emergency. So it's probably completely constitutional to begin with, but then, of course, things never go back. Now, I'm not saying that we're at this stage in Australia, but, you know, these these sorts of systems, surely they're built around the worst-case scenario. Yeah, they are, and... and, uh... And the key is, do we have a robust enough system that we can really determine is it is it a real emergency that justifies extraordinary powers? And, and I think we do. And I think that's where, if you look at over our history um, as a nation, 120 or so years, judges have only tended to be this permissive during World War One, World War Two, and a pandemic-like situation. And that, that's how extraordinary and novel this time is. Um, And if the judges didn't believe that was the case, then they wouldn't accept the government evidence. And in fact, there have been times out of those situations, such as during the Cold War, where our judges have actually said, no, we don't accept this as an emergency. We're not going to give you the deference. A really good example is the Menzies government 
in the early 50s tried to ban communism in Australia and the High Court stood up and said, no, we don't believe you. We do not think this is an emergency. We strike down this measure. Um, so you do depend upon strong independent judges who can tell one situation from another. But I think it's it's clear we are in a national public health emergency at the moment, which hence does justify a level of deference um, to government that would not ordinarily be the case. And that's all for today's Loose Cannon. Thanks for listening. Subscribe and tell your friends about it. You'll find our details in the show notes.